Well, a few weeks ago, I decided that I was going to uh, get a quick workout in, and I had a bunch of stuff on my plate that was extra that I didn't have normally, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to do it really quickly. And so I got up very early to shave a couple hours off of my day, and I went to uh, the Westmont um, Fitness Center. I call it the field house because it feels like my field house in, like, in high school. Um, it's, it's amazing. But uh, I'm there, and I do my warm-ups, and I do my routine, and all that stuff. And then there I am, 6, 6 a.m. in the morning, and I do my first warm-up rep with a bar. And the next thing I know, boom, I'm flat on my back. And so I lay there for an hour. I tried to act like it was part of my routine, you know, just to throw the students. But, um, but I don't think that worked. And then after I kind of crawled up and crawled out of the out of the fitness center. Pam picked me up and I got home and and then I got out of the car and I laid on the ground in my garage for two hours. And then I got up and then I made it to the bed where I laid for over 70 hours. Um, you know, we are not in control. You know, you think you're in control and shave a couple hours off your day and then you lose like a week. Well, anyway, there's not much to do when you're, you know, taking pain meds and muscle relaxers and flat on your back uh, for days. Uh, so I did what most of us do. Um, don't judge. I binge watched a show and I found the show that I was interested in. And one of the things that really drew my attention about it is that the villain was so human. I mean, he was so relatable. I'm not going to tell you the name of the show. Uh, because it's not appropriate for most of you, just for me. And, and this villain, though, he's like, he's not this hard, callous criminal. He, he, they depict him as being very anxious. And his eyes are always darting back and forth whenever he's out in public. And, and I thought, that's, that's somebody I think I can relate to. The kind of constant anxiety. Even though he has all this kind of money and power and control. And then there's this scene where, where he's making some cutthroat decisions, literally. And he turns to a business colleague of his and he says this. We have to control this world. Or it will control you. And if you don't protect yourself, it makes a mess and breaks you. And I thought, I knew I could relate to this guy. I mean, he might be the head of an international crime ring. But isn't that a statement that we can relate to? That feeling that you have to control this world or it will control you. It will make a mess and it will break you if you don't protect itself. You know, the more we find out uh, about the world, the more connected we get, the more our anxieties rise. Uh, anxiety is on the up. Because the more we find out about the moral world, the more we realize that we cannot control it. Isaiah 41 depicts a world that is out of control. This Persian emperor named Cyrus is coming and he is marching across the ancient Near East. Verse 2 tells us that he is coming from the East. Now, 
when it says he is coming from the east in Isaiah 41, 2, that is not just a geographic description. You see, when Adam and Eve left Eden, that place of shalom and peace, rest and comfort, they went east. See, east is the place of chaos, of confusion, of disorder, of unrest. See, chaos is coming. Turmoil is coming. And it is coming unabated. Verses 2 and 3 say that he is crushing the kings of the ancient Near East like dust under his feet. And everyone, and I mean everyone, is freaking out about it. Look at verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. Because this king is moving across the ancient Near East like Hitler moved across Europe in 1940. And they are terrified. And God's people are terrified. That's why verse 10, God has to tell them through the prophet, do not fear. Who do you say do not fear to? People who are afraid. They are terrified. But Isaiah 41 gives them this message. And it's a message that we need to hear as well in our uncontrollable world. And this is the message. God rules. God rules in everything. And God rules in love. And that's what we need to hear this morning. So let's look at those two points. First, God rules in everything. And second, God rules in love. God rules in everything. Verse 2 asks this rhetorical question. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. Who is inciting Cyrus to action? And who is making sure that he is successful at every turn? Who initiated his military campaign and who is sustaining it? Verse 4, we get the answer. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. See, what Isaiah wants the people of God to know is that Cyrus may be a powerful monarch, but Cyrus is under the hand of the sovereign God. That nothing that is happening is outside of God's control. That nothing that is happening is outside of his rule. Chapter 45, which was read earlier, puts it eloquently. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of the kings, to open doors before him that the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. On the ground, it appears as if the destiny of the ancient Near East is in the hands of the most powerful monarch in the world. But in reality, the destiny of the ancient Near East, including that most powerful monarch, is in the hands of Israel's God. And that's what Isaiah wants them to know. 
You see what Isaiah 41 says in narrative, Proverbs 21.1 says in principle. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord and he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Now, why does it say the king's hand is in the, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord? Why the king? Well, because in, in the ancient world, kings, uh, there was no constitutional monarchy. Kings were absolute sovereigns. Whatever they said went. Their word was law. They were the most powerful people in the reign. I mean, in the, in the kingdom. And it's saying that, 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 that even this king who has no Congress to veto him, even this king who, who doesn't have to argue for whether or not something's a national emergency, this king is in the hands of the sovereign God. And if God controls the king's heart, then you better believe he controls everybody else's heart as well. You see, this isn't an isolated incident. This isn't just this special time when God decided that it was important for him to swoop down and intervene in this case at this point in history. But most of the time, he just kind of sits back. Look at chapter 41, verse 4. Chapter 41, verse 4 asks, Who has performed and done this? calling generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Who has performed and done this? Now, you would think that maybe he's talking about Cyrus, but that's because it says this in our English translations, but this is not there in the Hebrew. In other words, it's saying who has performed and acted. Who has performed and acted generally, period, Who in all the world has performed and acted and who has been doing it from the beginning? Calling generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first. In other words, God has been acting this way all along. He is the sovereign God, the ruler of history, who actually is in control of every event and every circumstance. And from the very beginning, God has been orchestrating history for his redemptive purposes. Notice that he says, not I am the first and I am the last, but I am the first and I am with the last. Why is that? Because in the beginning, God. But in the end, he will unite all things. Under the head of his son. See, God is working out his purposes of redemption and has been in every single event, in every single occasion across the world, across time. Or as Ephesians 1.11 puts it, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Big things. Like ancient monarchs, Cyrus. Small things. Like a sparrow falling to the ground. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. Recently, Pam and I have been talking about switching her cell phone plan. uh, Because... Because we moved, and you know what happens when you move. Your cell phone doesn't work in your house. It's like Murphy's Law. It always happens. The, the place where you need your cell phone to work the most, it never, works, it never works in those places. 
And it used to be that they would have these um, they would have these advertisements, the cell phone companies, where they would show these maps of the U.S. and it was their coverage area. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I'm not Don Draper, but who in the world decided that that was a good advertising technique? I mean, half the U.S. is not highlighted in, right? I always looked at that, and it didn't give me any comfort at all because I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of space, you know, between here and Colorado where it's totally dead. And I'm like, what if I break down there? Well, I mean, what if I break down there? And what, what about the basement? And what about this place? I mean... I looked at that and I was like, I don't want to buy your your coverage plan. I don't want to buy your coverage plan. And then I'm like, whose coverage plan am I going to buy? But what if God had a coverage plan? If God had a coverage plan showing his rule and what his rule covered, let me ask, would there be any dead spots? And where would those dead spots be? Would there be basements that were dead? Would there be rooftops that were dead? Would there be places out in the middle of the desert in New Mexico? That are dead spots. If God had a coverage plan, would there be dead spots? Are there places where his signal does not extend to, where it is a little spotty? Now, we say God is in control, but is he always in control? Is he in control when we lose our job and we have to burn through our savings? Is he in control when one of our parents dies at a young age? Is it in control in the doctor's office when we get that diagnosis and we are just too young? Too young to have that. Does God actually control everything in this world or are there places where we have to just say that bad things happen because we live in a sin-cursed world? There was a Christian speaker who was going on a private plane to give his testimony. He took his young son. On the way back, they hit an electrical storm and the plane crashed. Jerry Bridges talks about how a well-meaning Christian friend came to the widow and said, one thing that you can be sure of, Intending to comfort her. One thing you can be sure of. God had no part in that accident. So apparently. A sparrow can't fall to the ground. Outside of the will. And care of our father in heaven. But a plane with two Christians on it can. Or can it? Does all things mean big things and small things, good things and bad things? Isaiah 45, 7, look at it. I form light and create darkness, God says. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Do you know what Isaiah is saying? There are no dead spots in God's coverage plan. God's map is full. 
It is highlighted all the way through. And that is, yes, that is good news. That is good news. But as it means that nothing in this world and nothing in history is outside of his sovereign rule. But that's good news that's hard for us to hear. It doesn't sound like good news to us because we got these questions. Especially as modern Westerners, we have these questions. Questions like, well, what about my free will? Questions like, uh, but does that mean my choices don't matter? Questions like, well, is God then the author of evil? So we have these questions. And I understand the questions. How do we answer these questions? I think the best way to answer is the way the Bible does, and that's with the story. There was a young boy, and he was a dreamer. Oh, did he like to dream. He, he had big plans for himself in his dreams. He was going to be great. In fact, he had a bunch of brothers. They were all going to bow down to him. And he used to tell them about his dreams and how one day that they were all going to bow down to him. And as you can imagine, they didn't like that too much. Eventually, they had had enough with the younger brother, Joseph, and they sold him off into slavery. Now, don't let that pass by you. They sold him into slavery. Slavery was not better in the deserts of the ancient Near East than it was in the American South or in, uh, in in the places around the world where children are sold into slavery now. They sold him to die in slavery. They went back to their father, Jacob, and said he was torn up, eaten by an animal. Joseph then goes to Egypt, and things get harder. He ends up in jail. He's in jail for a long time. He ends up in jail longer than he should have been in jail. But eventually he gets out, and eventually he not only gets out, but he he finds his place as one of the king's top advisors. And He has the foresight to know that a famine is coming, and so he stores grain up for uh, the Egyptians at that time. His brothers are out in the desert, and they run out of food, and they come to Egypt not knowing that their brother is there. And they stand before him begging for food, and then they realize this is Joseph, our brother, and they fall down terrified in front of him. And Joseph looks at them, and here's the punchline. After weeping, after weeping. Joseph looks at them in Genesis 50, verse 20, and he says, As for you, brothers, you meant it for evil. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now let's parse that. As for you, you intended evil. It was your will and your choice that you are responsible for that brought evil about. You meant it for evil. But it was God's will and God's choice to mean it for good. Not God turned it into good. No. God meant it for good. 
In other words, to make sense of what Joseph is saying here, we have to parse, we have to divide, we have to distinguish between God's will and the brother's will. In order to make sense of what Joseph is saying, we we have to distinguish between the brother's intents, which were evil, and God's and the effects of their intent, which was evil, and the intents and effects of God's will. And we have to realize that those intents and effects meet at the same event in history. You sold me to slavery. God sent me to save. Same act. You say, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because God is transcendent. And he is not a man that we should liken him to a man. And his being and his actions are completely distinct from ours. And that means they're not in competition with ours. And so, yes, here is the therefore You are a responsible moral agent. And yes, your choices matter. And yes, God rules over all things, including your sinful choices. And the prime example of this is not Joseph, it is Jesus. Acts 2, 22 and 23, Peter is preaching and he says, Men of Israel, this is at Pentecost, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good and that the many would be saved. You see, without this, there is no salvation. And so this is good, good news. It's good news because it means that no matter what happens, God can fulfill his promises and keep his purposes. I mean, if I make a promise to you, let's say you have an engagement party and you are throwing an engagement party on the beach in in Ventura. And you have given me, because I'm a good friend of yours, a very special role to play, like bring the ring. And I say, I'm going to do it. And you say, no, no, really, like, this is my engagement. I need you to promise you're going to be there. I got it. I'm going to be there. I'm going to make all the preparations. I'm going to be there. And let's say an hour before I leave, or I'm going to leave two hours early because it's really important. But two hours early before that, there's a tsunami that comes. 101 shut down. Can't get out to the sea. Too late to try to drive around to Bakersfield. And I love you, but I wouldn't do that anyway. (laughs) I mean, at that point, what happens? Do you say, why aren't you here? You let them know. You say, I understand. Why do you say I understand? Because when I make a promise, I make a promise. And we all know that that's contingent upon me doing everything in my power. And that is humanly possible to fulfill it. But we also realize that because not everything is in my power, not everything is humanly possible, things happen. We just don't say that. But what about with God? 
See, we say there were circumstances beyond my control, but if there are circumstances beyond God's control, doesn't that mean that he may not be able to keep his promise or fulfill his purpose? But because there are no circumstances beyond God's control, he actually can keep his promise and he can fulfill his purpose. You know, we we live with a lot of if onlys and a lot of regrets. If only I'd done this, if only I'd done that. If only I had sold this stock at this time. If only I had bought it at this time. If only I had sent in this, uh, this letter at this point in time. And a lot of those if-onlys don't have to do with us. Some of us have to do with circumstances outside of us. If only the stock would have gone up. If only this would have happened. But you know, God has no if-onlys. There are no if-onlys with God. God doesn't say, if only this would have happened, I could fulfill my purposes in this world. And that's good news. Because while on the ground it looks like our destinies at the, are at the whim of circumstances that are way beyond our control, our destinies are in the hands of the sovereign God who is working all things in accordance with his redemptive plan. And that means we don't have to fear. Fear not when circumstances are outside of our control. Now, I remember applying to grad schools and applying to jobs. And when I was applying to these things, I would see responses back that said that they had received something like sometimes a hundred and something applications. I applied to postdocs that over 400 or 600 people would apply for. At that point, I mean... How much of it is based on, like, who has the best qualifications? I mean, yes, it might get you a little way, but 400, 100, it doesn't You might as well, I thought, throw the resumes down the stairs and see which one lands at the bottom. Because I felt like my whole destiny and my whole future was at the whim of whether or not the head of HR had their coffee or not that morning. Because let's be honest, sometimes we have a bad, you know, conversation. Or maybe they had an ex named Kyle, and that ex was not good. <laughs> That's going to predispose them, right? And I'm like, my, my, man, my whole future is dependent upon, you know, the, the fact that there was a brat named Kyle who picked his nose all the time and wiped his boogers on her in, in elementary school. And I was like, no, that's me. Um, <laughs> no. My circumstances, my destiny and your destiny are not at the whim of an HR manager. They don't have to do with if-onlys. The sovereign God can fulfill his plans because he has no if-onlys. And that is good news. It's good news because it also means that our decisions are not ultimate. Yes, your choices matter. And your choices are extremely important. But they are not ultimate. Your choices cannot thwart God's purposes. And that is good news because that leaves us neither passive. Our choices matter. So we act. God acts not just in spite of our choices, but in and through them. And... It leaves us where we're not paralyzed. You know, if I thought that, that my choices were going to be ultimate, I don't know how I would act. Wait, 
Most of us are like that. That's why we can't pick careers. That's why we can't pick majors. That's why we can't get married. Because we think, well, what if I choose the wrong person? What if I choose the wrong path? And then, then I'm on God's plan B. And then I might end up on God's plan C. And the next thing you know, I'm at God's plan Z. I mean, it's like it's terrifying. And as parents, I mean, the things that we deal with, the more that we know about the world and the questions that we ask, I know the questions that you ask. Did I push them too hard? Am I not pushing them hard enough? Well, did, I, did I feed them right? Did I use too much formula? Should I have brought them into this school? Should we, have, should we have sacrificed and put to that school? Well, what if I'd have done this? And what if I'd have done this? And like, it just, it like, it, I freak out just thinking about all the ways that this parenting thing can go sideways. And like, if it is ultimately up to me, then it already has a million times over. But God loves our children more than we do. God cares about our children more than we do. And God's purposes will stand. And that means we can, we're free to love them. And to guide them as best as we can. Alec Motier, see, this... This doctrine is not supposed to be, this idea of God's rule, it is not supposed to be a philosophical conundrum. It is supposed to be a theological comfort. The great commentator Alec Motier says, the fact that God rules everything is a pillow for the most aching head, a sedative for the most tattered nerves, and a ground for trusting the divine promises. I couldn't have said it better. I almost thought about reading that and sitting down. But I think we need to go further because it's not just that God rules in everything. You also need to know, Christian, that he rules in love. Why is God moving through Cyrus here? Why? He tells us at least one of the reasons, one of the prime reasons, Isaiah 45, verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you Cyrus, though you do not know me. I am acting through you, though you do not know me. And the reason I am acting through you is for my people. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for good. It doesn't say that all things are good. But it does say that God works all things together for good. Those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose pastor in New York uh, named Tim Keller has a great illustration of this. He talks about the reason why he planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And the reason he planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York is because he was part of this denomination called the PCA, our denomination. And the reason he's part of this denomination called the PCA is because he had a seminary professor, his last two semesters of seminary, who convinced him that he was doctrinally a Presbyterian. What I'm trying to convince you, most of you. College students, talk to me more. Uh, This could be your story. So, but the reason why he had that seminary professor is because um, the seminary professor shouldn't have made it over to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He He was a Brit, and his visa got held up. But the reason why he was able to get through is because Gordon Conwell had a had a student at that time by the name of Mike Ford. 
Mike Ford had a dad at that time who happened to be named Gerald Ford, who also happened to be the 38th president of the United States. And so he says to the administration, I got a guy I can call. And so Gerald Ford expediates the visa. So the reason why Tim Keller is a Presbyterian and the reason why Redeemer Church has happened, and if you've been ministered to by Redeemer Church, then it's because Gerald Ford was president of the United States at that time. But why was Gerald Ford president of the United States at that time? Because Nixon resigned. And why did Nixon resign? Because of the Watergate scandal. And why did the Watergate scandal even happen? Because somebody left a door open a little too far, and the security guard noticed it and went in and saw the tapes. So if you have been blessed by Redeemer Presbyterian Church's ministry, and let me tell you, if you've been blessed by this ministry in any way, shape, or form, you have. Then that door was left open for you. All things. All things work together for good. God is bringing about his purposes in all things. But the reality is, is I have tied the lines together for you with that example. But most of the time we cannot see it. Do you think Israel thought when this Persian Gentile empire well, uh, emperor was, was marching across the ancient Near East? Do you think they thought, oh, this is God's plan of salvation for us? It's through this that God is going to bring about the Messiah. They didn't see that. And most of the time, we don't see it either. And here's the point. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't see how God is working through all things for our good and his glory, he still is and we can believe it. Last week, Jonathan talked about a, an experience in rounds as a seminarian in a, in a, as a hospital chaplain. Uh, You can learn a lot in the hospitals. The Reverend Frank Limehouse was doing the same thing. He was a hospital, uh, he was a seminary student doing rounds with the chaplain. And one time they got this call that that someone's spouse had just died. uh, Or someone's son had just died. And they walk into the room and this woman is screaming saying, Why did God do this to me? Why did God do this to me? And the chaplain looked at the woman to comfort her and said, Ma'am, God didn't have anything to do with the death of your son. And then that woman looked at that chaplain and pointedly said, Don't you take away. Don't you take away the only hope that I have. And what is that hope? The hope is that the sovereign God is working out his purposes for our good through the most tragic, difficult, painful, and yes, even sinful circumstances that we face. See, don't you want to be able to say with Joseph, but God? You meant it for evil, but God. Don't you want that written over everything in your life? Don't you want to be able to say over every tragedy, but God? Don't you want to be able to say over every illness, 
but God? Don't you want to be able to say over every failure and even every sin, but God? Yes, I blew up. Yes, I screwed up. Yes, but God. Don't you want to be able to say, yes, death took them. And death is an enemy, but God is doing something else. And God is doing something greater. You can. Even when you can't see, you can. But you have to trust him. You have to trust in one circumstance at a time. And listen, if you don't trust in the sovereign God, I want, I, want, I want to be really clear. You will trust in something. Did you notice what happens when the nations get wind that Cyrus is coming? When the nations get wind that Cyrus is coming... Verses in chapter 41, verses 6 and 7 says that they do two things. First, they say to one another, be strong. It's what we do. We give each other platitudes and groundless hope. Be strong. It'll all work out. Buck up. You can get through it. And then they also start making idols. That's what they start doing. And, and, and we do that too. J.D. Greer is a pastor in North Carolina. He tells a story about sitting in the airport and waiting. Some gal finds out that he is a, a pastor. and She says, oh, I've taken a lot from religion. And then she, she, um, she pulls out some rosaries with a crucifix on it. And she says, I mean, I'm not Catholic, but I took this from the Catholic faith. And whenever I fly, uh, it, gives me, it gives me good luck. And then he's like wondering how to respond to this. And then the person across from him uh, is talking to her husband. She says, look, the horoscope looks good today for us. And then this other guy across goes, oh, well, guess what? I always travel because well, uh, this lady here, she says, oh, the horoscope's good. We've got the rosary. We have a Baptist pastor. We're going to be great. And this guy goes even better. And I kid you not. This man says, I always travel with a statue of St. Christopher, the traveling saint. It was this big. And he pulls it out of his bag, this statue of St. Christopher. So we got a Baptist pastor, rosary beads, a statue of St. Christopher, and a good horoscope. You know that the flight is going to be okay. And we will cling to anything in an uncontrollable world to give us a sense of safety and security. And to relieve our anxieties, we will cling to anything and everything. And it might not be a statue of St. Christopher for you, but it could be a political leader. It could be a more secure job. It could be your 401k. It could be having the right parenting strategy. It could be diet and exercise to just get a control of your life and your health. It could be locked doors in a crime-free neighborhood. But if we don't have a sovereign God who rules in all things, we will look to anything and everything and we will still be afraid. Because none of those things can save us. And none of those things can work in through even the worst circumstances in our lives. Don't you want a God who is big enough to overrule your sin and overrule your suffering and overrule your tragedies? Isaiah draws a contrast between what the between what the nations are doing and the people of Israel. He says, "But you," verse eight of 
chapter 41. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called you from the farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not. I am with you. Do not be dismayed. And the idea is do not be darting your eyes from the right and to the left, for I am your God. Don't be anxious. Don't fear. I am your God. I rule everything and I love you. I chose you. I called you. And not only did I choose you, I continue to. Notice that it says, called you from the far corners of the earth, saying, present tense continual, saying over and over and over again, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not cast you off. You are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not cast you off. You are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not cast you off. After almost a year of walking with her husband, battling cancer, Christy Stockhouse redecorated Jameson's room to brighten it up and to encourage him. And on the wall, she put, after walking with him for so long and caring for him, in the midst of all that tragedy, I choose you. Over and over and over again. Don't you see that that's what God says to you? I choose you. Over and over and over again. And each week when we come to hear the gospel, we come to hear, I choose you. Over again. And each week when we come to this table, we hear God say, I choose you. Over again. I have not cast you off. And I am ruling all things for you. Do not fear. Do not fear. Amen.